Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and Gas Production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream Podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Milkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energy Consulting, and joined the Oil and Gas Global Network as a podcast host. I invite you to go to the OGGN website and take a look at all the other podcasts in the network and the new merchandise that's now available. Maybe even pick up the Oil and Gas Upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bit finds oil. And don't forget to sign up for OGGN's weekly newsletter, Sunday Update, and the links are all in the show notes below. And now I'd like to introduce you to today's guest, Paul Hudson, CEO of Petro Alpha Energy. Hey, Paul. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to read just a little bit of your bio here, and then you can fill us in on some of the um, some of your information as we go through uh, our interview this morning. Paul Hudson is the consummate senior executive, entrepreneur, and market leader, and is acknowledged for success in the U.S. and Mexican petroleum industries with a track record for adapting to and creating opportunities in unique and unconventional business cultures worldwide. Oh, you're going to have to tell us, tell us all about that. This includes onshore and offshore and drilling operations in Latin America and other parts of the world for over a period of 30 years. Paul earned a BS in geological engineering at Arizona State University and is bilingual English and Spanish. So I think we talked before about um, geological engineering. That's not engineering, it's not geology, but maybe it is engineering. Help us with that. Help us appreciate what, what geological engineering is. So really, it's just oh, semantics. Yeah. Most universities call it civil engineering. Uh, it's just a question of putting a little bit more accent on the geology as opposed to the engineering, trying to blend the two. And then there are ad- more advanced degrees like rock mechanics and things like that that, that are more geologically uh, geological engineering in nature. So it's it's sort of a great, a great. Well, you're the first, <laughs> you're the first geological engineer that we've had on the podcast. So had to ask you about sure. that. Great. And then um, you've got such a, a career that includes um, being bilingual in English and Spanish, and um, having uh, made good inroads into the Mexican petroleum industry as well as the U.S. Tell us a little bit about how you got started, what all that means, and. And uh, maybe being from being in Arizona, I don't know you from Arizona, uh, is part of that story. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm from Arizona, uh, raised there, uh, went to school there. Uh, but I, and I began my career uh, working for a major oil company, uh, and I began it as an exploration geologist. And I guess because of my relative experience and age at that time, I spent most of my time working in the field in some pretty undesirable places. 
great experience, but not so great for my personal life. Uh, so at, at one point, yeah, that can happen. Yeah, That's a common story. At one point, I decided to make a career change, uh, get a life, so to speak, and uh, I took a took a job with a major service company, and uh, that which ultimately became Big Blue Schlumberger. Uh, uh, so I spent some time there. I most <laughs> SLB SLB, yeah, SLB now, right? <laughs> Got to keep track of all the name changes, oh, but uh, I spent some time in operations yeah. there a little bit. But most of my most of my time there was spent in, in research and development. Again, I was in a, in a group we called Rock Mechanics and Reservoir Evaluation. So I, I got to be uh, involved in projects all over the world and exposed to all different sorts of things, uh, from well construction to production opter- production operations and optimization, with a lot of emphasis on problem solving all over the world. So great again, great experience. Uh, but at at some point. Uh, industry does what it always does. It took a dip and I decided it was, that was a perfect opportunity to go try something new. So I went and, and participated in a drilling research and development project, uh, which lasted a couple of years, ended up going back to uh, research and development, hydraulic fracturing. Uh, and that led me to teaming up with a, a group of friends and very talented people. And together we we built a, uh, a hydraulic fracturing software development company and uh, marketed a, a suite of engineering tools all over the world in multiple languages, which led to a, a lot of consulting. So I had my, my geology and geophysical background. I had my production operations and, and, and well construction background. Now I've got some drilling behind me and, and I'm, I'm a hydraulic fracturing expert. So I decided, well, might as well go out there and, and show the world what I can do. So we we started consulting and using the tools that we had developed uh, in that consulting. Uh, and at one point, I got invited to Mexico uh, to give a presentation and, and help them with some problems they were having, primarily with hydraulic fracturing at that time. And uh, somehow I ended up staying there for 15 years and uh, oh my gosh. ended up bidding on were you fluent in Spanish before you got there? I was because I had worked in Venezuela and Colombia or? and other places previous. And of course, growing up in Arizona, I've been exposed to it my whole life. But I never studied it. I just kind of picked it up. Um, but then, of course, yeah, yeah. working in Mexico for that period of time, I, I, I got pretty good at it and uh, ended up uh, starting out as sort of an advisor and a consultant uh, for the national oil company there, Pemex. And then... Uh, started to see opportunities for participating in service contracts and and some of the stuff that we were doing on our engineering consulting uh, was leading Pemex to the idea that they should do big projects rather than small projects. And uh, when they started coming out with these large uh, well construction and, and turnkey contracts, I decided to, to form a group and uh, see if I could participate. And which we did, and we did very successfully for a long period of time. Ended up drilling a lot of wells. Uh, ended up owning our own drilling rigs, all of our own services, from drilling fluids to uh, directional drilling to uh, cementing services, uh, just all kinds of things. So civil construction. In, in addition to drilling and completing wells, we had to do all of the uh, site preparation, so roads and locations. We built the gathering systems, the production facilities. So 
really got to be exposed to and, and supervise and, and, and control all aspects of field development. So that was that was really what yeah. all, all offshore. I'm all onshore. That, that, we, that was uh, that was onshore, but at that time I also uh, was I also had a, a joint venture with a offshore drilling contractor, and so we were drilling some of the first deep water wells in Mexico, uh, and that was also uh, a, a big part of what we were doing at that time. So, and that went on for for a, I think at least a dozen years too. So. Uh, we were we were very busy all throughout that period, uh, and at one point there was a a series of of large contracts released. We won more than our fair share of, and uh, wouldn't you know, a major competitor came along and wanted to buy us. So uh, in two thousand and nine, we ended up selling everything, almost everything, uh, to two different uh, groups. One we were partnered with already. And one uh, that we uh, that basically just wanted to come in and take over our contracts and that sort of thing. So we sold all the companies, and including about a thousand or more than a thousand additional wells to be drilled. So uh, that was that was a big thing in my life at that time, and uh, a decision that I had to think a lot about. Uh, sometimes think back like maybe I shouldn't have sold out, but but I did, and. Uh, and after that, I sort of used that time to spend some time with my children. I have triplet children, by the way, and they were quite young at that time. Oh, my God. So I, was, I got to spend about <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. almost a year with my kids while they were still young, which I'll never regret. Uh, but eventually the, the itch came back and I needed to get back to doing something productive. And uh, so I took all that experience that I had from all the other things that I'd done and I went back out and started doing more consulting and started doing other projects in other parts of the world. Um, ran a publicly traded operating company for a while. Um, just different things. Built Probably built 20 different companies and, and sold them all, that sort of thing. So I was a bit of a serial entrepreneur for a while. Serial entrepreneur, that's true. Yeah. Okay, keep going. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of what led me to what we're doing here today. Um, you know, Petro Alpha Energy. Petro Alpha Energy. Petro Alpha Energy. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, let me let's unpack a little bit more about your experience before we get into Petro Alpha because, okay. um, wow, there's just so much there. Well, there so, is, and I'm not. So you are, <laughs> you are the uh, consummate subject matter expert in subsurface, you know, uh, uh, upstream, and and that includes um, unconventional, conventional, and conventional. Correct. And you've been in the business for over 30 years. So you have seen all of these dramatic changes, uh, not the least of which in, uh, you know, 2007, 2008, you know, where um, hydraulic fracturing really you know, came forward. So help us with a little bit, share with folks a little bit about the, the changes over the course of time with respect to conventional and then, you know, kind of contrast conventional with unconventional force, because some of our listeners are not subject matter experts in upstream or in subsurface. Um, and, and this would be a great opportunity for a little education. Yeah, let me put it a, a little bit more in perspective. So I actually am coming up on my 44th year in the industry. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Yay. the major oil company that I s started with was really the company that's credited with uh, I guess 
inventing hydraulic fracturing. They were the they were the group that really brought it to to the forefront. Um, and so a lot of my career has been around hydraulic fracturing. So what's really changed from when I started in the very early 80s, uh, 1981, to now is that there's been some technological advances. The two key ones that I could that I could comment on are directional drilling and hydraulically fracturing horizontal wells. Okay, those are the two uh, game changers. Uh, there's been a lot of other technologies and a lot of other things, but those are the real big ones. Uh, and that's really sort of the distinction between conventional versus non-conventional. Uh, so back prior to around 1990, I'm going to say, uh, we didn't have unconventional to speak of, or it, not the way we think of it today. So most wells were vertically drilled, hydraulically fractured sometimes, not all the time. There were other types of stimulation treatments used to, to develop production. After about 90, 91, uh, horizontal drilling was starting to, to catch on. Uh, the Canadians were quite uh, active in that area, as were certain major oil and gas companies in the U.S. Uh, Philip 66 is the one that sticks in my memory. Uh, so once that people started figuring out how to drill horizontal wells, the next step was, what should we do with these horizontal well bores? Yeah, we're getting increased production and, 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 and all looks good, but is there something else that we could do? Some stimuli, excuse me, some stimulation technique that we could try. And uh, uh, so people started to propose the idea of, of hydraulically fracturing these horizontal well bores. And I actually wrote an SPE paper, I think it was in 1991, called Hydraulically Fracturing Horizontal Well Bores. So uh, that was one of the, the things that, that sort of led to all the activity that's going on today in some of the big resource plays, you know, including the Permian Basin, the Delaware Basin, the Bakken, all those probably wouldn't exist without horizontal drilling and hydraulically fracturing. And we continue today. Well, they would have died out, they, right, with the conventional. Yeah, they would have died out. Ended, been, and that gave them new It wouldn't life. have been economic. Let's just put it that way. I mean, you could take a, in the same reservoir, a vertically a vertical well, hydraulically fractured, might produce, pick a number, 100 barrels a day initial production. You put, you take the same reservoir with a horizontal well, multiple fractures, you can get 1,000 or more. So 10 times the increase in production from, from uh, what at the time was not 10 times the cost. Today it might be, but uh, right, right. It, yeah. Well, and I just want to give Permian credit for having been there, right? Absolutely. Uh, and then uh, with the course of time, uh, depletion, uh, and then new technologies, hydraulic fracturing, um, horizontal drilling gave it all new life, and is really part of what we've got now in terms of some level of energy independence um, with respect to oil and gas. Uh, production domestically. So I just want to give the Permian a little bit of credit. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. Anyway, you've got a great, great conversation here about um, uh, contrasting, you know, before and after. So, so let's keep going with your unconventionals and then, then we'll get to Petro Alpha. Okay, sure. So uh, the, un the unconventional stuff, as I said, is, is, is continuing to evolve. Uh, there's all kinds of new concepts and new discussions and in the role that I'm in today, we get to participate in, in a lot of that stuff that all the different companies that we speak to about their projects and get to have, you know, exchanges into, Hey, well, have you, have you heard about this? Have you tried that? 
you know, all of that sort of stuff. So that that's kind of interesting for me to be able to, to do that. Um, but of course, over the last several years, the parent-child relationship has been important in how we space these horizontal well bores and, and fracture systems. And then now lately, uh, more recently, we're talking about fracture clusters and it's sort of the same thing. It, it all comes down to interference, right? So now we have fractures. Are they too closely spaced? Are they not spaced close enough to, to try to optimize the, the drainage of any particular reservoir? So all that sort of stuff is, is ongoing and being refined as we speak today. And, uh, and that's only going to lead to... So parent-child. Yeah. I'm sorry, let me interrupt you. Parent-child, that's a new um, concept for people who've been listening to the podcast. We haven't ever brought that up. You alluded to it with respect to interference, but expand a little bit on, you know, the parent-child challenge that we face in terms of hydraulic. Right. Practice. So what you have is you, if you start with a, a virgin reservoir, let's say, and you drill a, drill a well into it and you start to produce it, you start to drain it, and you decide, okay, I'm going to start drilling some, some more wells. The, the question or the challenge is how close can I space those wells so that they're not competing for the same drainage area? And uh, so... The, the parent would be the original well, the child or the or the subsequent wells. And uh, so that that really there's been a lot of work done on trying to model optimal spacing. And, and obviously that varies from field to field and reservoir to reservoir. Uh, so that that's one of the things that people are, I guess, uh, focused on right now and, and studying to try to optimize. Uh, and then that only leads to the next thing, and that is, how close can I space my fractures so that they don't compete for the same drainage area? You know, is there, do you, do you reach a point where they're not only interference between two fractures where one's pulling it one way and one's pulling it the other way, but you're just wasting money by uh, uh, developing fractures that, that aren't really adding to the productivity of the well. So all that stuff is interesting. And, and from a reservoir uh, engineering and reservoir management standpoint are going to be the sort of advances that you can expect in the in the next few years is, is more information along those lines, and, and of course all that'll have a great impact on you know the uh, recoverable hydrocarbons from any reservoir, including West Texas, Permian, etc. Um, I remember when I was a child, and since we don't, uh, oh, go say, ahead. I when yes, I was a child, us. of course, probably other people out there do as well. We weren't supposed to have any oil and gas left, right? We were supposed to run out probably about 20. Peak 20, oil. Yeah, a long time ago, right? No more. We just, and it's not that we're necessarily finding new reservoirs. In some cases, yes, but we are finding ways of draining the existing reservoirs much more efficiently. And uh, people talk about things like recovery factors and, and uh, mobility and, and, and things like that. Those are where the, the big advances are. The reserves are in the ground. It's how do we how do we extract them and how do we improve our ability to extract larger percentages? Uh, so that'll go on for a while. And the research element of your background, uh, re, uh, research and development uh, aspects of your of your background and your experience with research. I mean, that's also part of the story. Um, taking um, accomplishments or 
um, the deep dive of understanding, adding to the uh, scientific knowledge about reservoirs and taking those insights and then applying them. Um, that's why we do research. We do research and then we try it out and we see how we can improve. Um, but when we were drilling, uh, un- when we were drilling conventional reservoirs, uh, we would run into shale, but there wasn't really much we could do with that. Uh, and then, uh, but the oil was in there. And then when we talk about horizontal drilling, hydraulic fracturing, we're talking specifically about shale development or tight reservoirs, reservoirs that don't have the permeability. So we've moved from one kind of reservoir to another kind of reservoir and reservoir and uh, research has helped us make those uh, changes and also have um, opportunities and profitability from the, the application of that new technology. So this whole arena of new technology is um, something really exciting. It is. And, uh, you know, for someone who's probably in the twilight of his career, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see that, you know, the, the industry is continuing to advance. And uh, despite a lot of criticism, you know, let's face it, we all know that the oil and gas industry has been in the penalty box for some time now. Uh, all fossil fuels have been. Uh, and it, Depending upon what's what side of the argument you're on for for, for global warming and all that, I, I I believe that the oil and gas industry is not going anywhere anytime soon. In fact, if you look at the at the U.S. government websites, uh, the DOE, etc., they are predicting increases not only in the production but consumption of oil and gas through 2050. So you know, they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah. Well, that would be the Energy Information Administration, a um, independent agency of the Department of Energy. They have to deal with the science and the market and putting those two things together. And, you know, what does what do the models tell tell us about um, about future energy supply and demand? And and that's sort of an objective look at it. Um, policy notwithstanding. Now, policy is the job of, you know, world leaders. Um, and it's up to the people to, you know, pursue the uh, uh, putting world leaders in place who were who will be able to take, lead us in, in good direction. But that doesn't change where we are here yeah, and now. Correct. And here and now we are uh, involved in uh, many times, many types of energy and we need all energy. Um, especially oil and gas right now, because there's no substitute for the energy, um, the density of energy that's provided by oil and gas. So that's that's kind of where we are now. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, Petro Alpha, tell us about your company. Uh, your, I guess this is when you came back into oil and gas. Did you? Is that how our, uh, Petro Alpha came from? Or how uh, I, I was doing other projects and other things, um, and actually some of the other partners at Petro Alpha. Uh, contacted me and uh, they, they literally said, hey, Paul, we're thinking about opening up an energy fund. Do you know anything about oil and gas? <laughs> I said, well, I know a little oh bit. Oh, my gosh. I know a little bit, okay? <laughs> uh, and that's literally how it happened. Oh, that's so, great. Uh, oh, my decided, gosh. Uh, that that oh might gosh. be a good way to to take all the experience and, and uh, information that I had in my head and, and try to apply it to, to something other than just going out and drilling more wells and seeing what I could do there. Um, so yeah, Petroff Energy is a, is a, it's a structured credit private capital provider to the energy industry. Uh, the actual conversation we were just having about oil and gas versus other types of energy. We do all kinds of energy. 
oil and gas is, is probably our primary focus, but we do unconventional stuff. We do uh, renewable. We do a lot of different things. We, we're, not, we're not afraid to look at these things. I personally believe, uh, as I think you just alluded to, uh, regardless of what you believe about global warming and all that, we, we should be conserving oil and gas for the future, for future generations. They're going to need it just like we need it now because of it's used in so many different aspects of our lives. So, so we should, when possible and when feasible, look for other uh, sources of energy. And, but today we're going to talk about oil and gas. Um, so Petroalpha currently provides credit solutions that support oil and gas development. And typically that's backed by borrowers' assets. And those assets act as collateral those can be equipment, real property, they can be production, existing production, and including certain categories of reserves. So, Paul, let me interrupt you for just a moment. You're the first um, guest we've had on the podcast to talk about the money side of oil and gas. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand how many works in oil and gas, how oiling each well is an investment, how you have to um, uh, sell the value proposition of this investment and how this investment comparing to other investments is part of the decision to make the investment in the oil and gas in, in drilling the well or in other um, development activities related to oil and gas. I, I think some people have, you know, this idea that, you know, we, it, like as though oil and gas are part of the utility structure where costs are sort of passed on to the investment costs are passed on to the, um, to the users or something, but oil and gas is a commodity. And so the development of oil and gas has a different kind of money structure. Could you, could you start a little bit there, a little back up a little bit and then help us with um, understanding uh, Petro Alpha and its contribution to energy security? If you yeah. Know. So, while it's true that oil and gas is a particular type of uh, asset-based lending in our in our it's it's not completely unlike real estate right we know in a real estate you want to go build a building you have to secure the land you have to hire an architect you know get all the construction crews together and the equipment the cranes whatever and and then forecast how you're going to get that money back later that's not completely different than oil and gas, right? We, we, when a borrower comes to us and says, hey, we're, uh, we want to go drill 10 wells. You know, we say, all right, well, what do you have today? Well, today we have you know, this production, we have these fields, we have these assets. We take a look at what they have. What we do is we invest in assets. We don't invest in balance sheets. So if a company comes to us and says, hey, we need hundred million dollars. First question is, what are you going to use it for? So that's the difference between us and, and some other lenders. Um, what we do is we, we look at very specific projects, very specific uses of funds and say, all right, you want to drill 10 wells? Show me the development plan. Show me what your budgets are. Show me what the reserves are. All, all of that goes into ultimately estimating, calculating, forecasting production, which leads to a forecast of cash flow. And obviously, there's a lot of assumptions that have to be made in the process. We have to ensure our investors that if we're going to give you that money to, to do the work that you want to do, that we're going to get that money back and that the, that 
that money is not at risk. So that that's one of the things that we're focused on always is what is the risk of any given project? And frankly, the risk in things like oil and gas development is different than building a building. It's different than other types of investments that you can make. Um, it's probably much more akin to mining than anything. You you believe the, the the product is there, but you have to go develop a plan to extract it economically in order to bring it to market, get the cash flow to pay back the borrower. Um, and you know, to to really understand oil and gas. Uh, financing, let's just say, you have to understand that, that historically there's really kind of been two or maybe three different uh, sources of uh, you know, development capital, we'll call it. And uh, maybe before that, but you have to understand there's different phases of developing a reservoir or a field, or uh, and, and you know it starts with exploration, that moves into or actually it starts with prospecting. We'll call it prospecting, where we're actually just out there making measurements, making tests, maybe doing geophysical surveys or whatever to try to see if there's anything down there before we ever think about drilling a hole. So that's prospecting. Then there's exploration where we, we start to drill. We drill a hole, drill a couple of holes. Once you've proven that the, that the oil and gas is there, then you can move into what we call the development phase. And for us at Petroff Energy, we don't fool with prospecting or exploration. We only deal with development. And that in itself greatly reduces the risk uh, for us and for our, our, our partners and uh, investors. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question that you had, but... Uh, Oh, absolutely did. Absolutely did. I think it brought out the um, the notion that um, people don't drill wells out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, this is a business. And in order to um, uh, get a return on your investment, it has to be a good investment. And if you don't have all the capital that you need to make this investment, then the project doesn't happen. It's as simple as that. Or if, so, if the money can go somewhere else for a greater return for the investor, then that's the competition. Uh, and, that's, and that's what it's about there. So our energy security does depend on, with respect to oil and gas, does depend on being able to continue to make those investments in oil and gas because wells last a long time, but they're not, they don't last forever. So we have to continue this, um, this investment. Uh, and the price of oil, oh, help us connect the price of oil with uh, perhaps drilling or investment or whatever. That might be a, an interesting uh, thing to bring out there for people because, you know. Yeah, sure. The, the price of oil and gas or, or the, we'll just call it the commodity, uh, as everyone knows, it goes up and it goes down. And there, and that in itself presents a huge risk to any project. And that you get involved in a, a project that's going to be, you know, a four or five year uh, investment. And oil and gas takes a dip during that, you could be in trouble uh, because that'll greatly affect the revenue. So there's something called hedging that uh, is is available. It's it's kind of like buying an insurance on the commodity price. Uh, you're basically setting limits on on where the commodity price can go. And there are companies out that out there that will provide your hedging uh, your hedges to you. They're not free. You have to pay for them, uh, typically. Uh, 
there are things like costless collars that can be they've used that minimize the expense. But for the most part, you're you're buying some insurance on commodity prices. We almost always uh, build that into our agreements, our credit agreements as a covenant. We require our borrowers to do it, but only when we feel like it's necessary. There are some times when hedging, you wouldn't want to hedge. For example, when oil and gas prices are very low, you wouldn't want to hedge because there's not a lot of room for them to go down, or at least that's the, the thesis, right? We're at the bottom. Why should we buy any insurance for it to go down any further? Because when you put a hedge, when you purchase a hedge, you're, you're limiting typically the upside and the downside. There are ways to, of different types of hedges that can, that can change that to some extent. But basically, when, when prices are low, you don't want to limit your upside because you, you're betting that they're going to be going up, not going down. Uh, but, but hedging is how we, we sort of regulate or, or, or mitigate the risk of commodity price fluctuations. Uh, that's one of the things that we use. A lot, of, a lot of oil and gas companies do it as well. Uh, it's certainly not anything that we invented or created, but it's, it's really the, the only way that you can manage that risk. Um, but one of the things that happens. Oh, this is great. Yeah. yeah, yeah one of the things ahead. that happens yeah. in, in the industry but that I have seen is that, you know, again, industry cycles between high and low pricing. And when prices are high, everybody gets sort of euphoric and, uh, you know, they, they, they basically lose sight on their, their fiscal responsibility or fiscal uh, uh, efficiency. Uh, they, they, there's, there's plenty of money coming in. Nobody's worried about anything. And what happens is, you know, burden rates and operating rates uh, tend to kind of fall out of control. And then, and then what happens always is that prices come down and everybody's sort of caught with these prices, this pricing, operating expenses, et cetera, that's, that's not sustainable. And that's when companies collapse. Uh, that's when bankruptcies occur, uh, and usually it's too late to employ any kind of risk management or fiscal discipline at that point. Uh, so we've been, you know, paying attention to all that and, and, and using that in, as part of our underwriting practices. We're going to require these sorts of risk management practices and these sort of fiscal discipline, no matter what the pricing is. Just get used to it. It's going to happen. It has to happen. It's the only way you're going to get the money. It's the only way you're going to, and, and it ends up being good for everybody, right? Because uncontrolled project burden and unmanaged hedging strategies and all that just creates problems and it, it causes companies to struggle to develop these the high quality assets that they have. Um, so implementing all these covenants and our agreements to do all the things and then doing the surveillance on a on a loan once it's made just kind of keeps everybody moving in the right direction and it, and it just promotes efficiency it obviously is a, is a way we manage risk for our investors and for ourselves uh, but it also is good for the for the borrower because they end up making more money that way too and they stay in business uh, as opposed to being caught with uh, you know inefficient practices in place so we, we do all that, right, right. and uh, that that's a that's in a very important part of of lending. It's not just 
giving someone money and then, you know, hoping it comes back, but it's just making sure that it comes back. And that's, that's part of our practice. And Excellent. I quite frankly don't understand how other lenders, first of all, evaluate opportunities when, you know, if you're evaluating a drilling project or completion project or gathering system or whatever, and you've never been involved in it, you don't understand the complexity of it. I don't know how you make decisions about whether there's a good investment there or a risky investment there. Uh, and so that, again, we're not investment bankers. Most people out there in the in the lending, oil and gas lending are, I guess, are financial people, uh, certainly more so than than oil and gas engineers. Uh, so we have a different approach. Uh, and our approach is uh, we're not your partner to the extent that we're not private equity. You know, we don't own part of your company. You own your company. You have certain contractual obligations to us through these covenants to do certain things, report to us financially, report to us reserves, uh, you know, basically do everything that we tell you you, you need to do. And uh, that's how we get our money back. And then once we get our money back, it's see you later. You need any more? If not, good luck. We're out of your business. <laughs> so, yeah, great, great. Oh, no, this is, this is very exciting. Money money is exciting to talk about. And, and certainly when it comes to oil and gas, my, my next favorite topic, right? Uh, so <laughs> the, love having this conversation with you. We are almost at time. Is there anything else you want to share quickly with uh, our listening audience? Well, I just encourage okay. everyone, anyone interested in, in trying to secure oil and gas financing to, to, you know, take a look around, make sure when you approach a company that you've got all your information together and just keep in mind, they're going to be looking for risk. So you need to demonstrate how you're what you identify are the risks and how you're going to manage those risks, including having your own sort of pro forma cash flow model built. That's that's going to lead to uh, a much faster outcome in terms of whether or not you're going to get the money or not. And uh, you know it's going to give the, the borrower a lot more confidence that you know what you're doing. Excellent. Excellent. Paul Hudson, CEO, Petro Alpha Energy. Thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to oil and gas and the future of oil and gas. Well, thank you for having me. Great, great. Thank you um, all again. And thank you everyone for listening. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.